0: Hello, and welcome to The Evidence-Based Chiropractor. I am your host, Dr. Jeff Langmay. Today's episode, we are back at it with the research, and this is a paper that has been getting a ton of press. It was just released in uh, scientific reports. The title is Demonstration of Cervical Conduction Time and Neuroplastic Changes After Cervical Lordosis Rehab in Asymptomatic Subjects. It's a randomized placebo-controlled trial. I think there is a lot to this study. It's probably gonna bring up a lot more questions than it answers, and that's not a bad thing. So we're going to break it down on today's episode, kind of hit home those talking points, hopefully ask a few questions that you think about throughout this week and the coming weeks, and there's just a lot of good stuff that I think it can get all of us as chiropractors to think about how we approach our clinical and patient care. So we're going to dive into this and much more on today's episode. Before we get started, I want to say a few words about the smart chiropractor. The smart chiropractor is optimizing and powering and automating your patient's journey. Taking a patient from a potential patient to an active patient into a, a proactive patient on the back end is super important. Everybody's going through a journey in your practice. The question is, Are you having them go through an optimized or a smart patient journey when somebody is a potential patient, making sure that you teach and invite to create that fertile ground to become an active patient where you can educate, where you can retain is critical. And then when they become a proactive patient, are you enrolling them and are you reactivating them? That's what all the tools within the smart chiropractor are designed to do for you. That's why we focus on email, social video streaming, patient handouts, you name it, all of that and more. You can check it out for yourself at the smart chiropractor.com slash demo. Hop on right there, schedule a demo, see if what we're doing is right for you. The smart chiropractor.com slash demo. We're working with hundreds of docs around the world. We're impacting millions of people each and every month through email and social. And we'd love to see if it's an opportunity to work with you. So check us out at thesmartchiropractor.com slash demo. But as I said at the top of today's episode, we're talking all about the research. And the title of the study again was Demonstration of Central Conduction Time and Neuroplastic Changes After Cervical Lordosis Rehab in Asymptomatic Subjects. And it's a randomized placebo-controlled trial. So basically, the study at the highest level is they were saying what's going on with in, in the brain? What's going on with central conduction time? What's going on with neuroplastic changes? when cervical lordosis is is altered or influenced in people that have no symptoms whatsoever. So that's an interesting topic. I think for over 100 years, all of us as chiropractors have looked and said, hey, what's that balance between structure and function? This study really honed in on that and is taking a look at when there are structural changes, when the cervical lordosis changes, what do we see in functional Influences, And that's an important question, I think, to ask. And there's a lot of good stuff in this study. And let's dive right in. So we know low back is really that biggest challenge in the world as far as disability is concerned. But cervical spine doesn't rank too far behind. And disorders in the cervical spine and, and neck, they're some of the greatest contributors to spine pain, disability, and work loss worldwide. So, you know, this study looked at asymptomatic individuals, but the cervical spine is an important part of what's going on here. Uh, there's no question about that. And in addition to just having pain syndromes and all the pain uh, associated with cervical spine issues, it's been thought that abnormal cervical sagittal alignment can play a role in altered neurophysiological changes, specifically with somatosensory processing and sensory motor control. Now, all of us probably have a range of normalcy, I'm going to say, right? So I'm somebody who believes there's probably not. A perfect cervical curve for everybody, but that everybody likely has what would be perfect for them. And that's an ideal. But the beauty of who we are as dynamic beings is that there's a dynamic range, right? So, but when we get really far off, when we go out of our dynamic range, we're pushing beyond that. I think that's where we start to see somatosensory processing issues. We see sensory motor control issues. Essentially, that's a fancy way of saying we see functional issues. And quite often that comes in with pain as well. So. One of the things they also brought up in the study title was neuroplasticity so let's break down exactly what that means and here's kind of the technical definition it's an inherent ability of the brain and nervous system to develop and modify synaptic connections resulting in changes in structure function and organization within the nervous system basically it's our dynamic abilities right neuroplasticity is the dynamic ability for your brain and nervous system to modify synaptic connections that can create alterations in structure, function, and organization. So at a micro level, that can get super, super complex. At a high level, I think it makes a lot of sense. Now, what can contribute, and neuroplastic changes, what goes on there, right? What can contribute to changes there? Well, pain is one of the biggest things. So pain is considered to be one of those strong contributing factors to triggering neuroplastic changes. And there's a ton of studies out there that suggest that these changes are an adaptive process due to continuous and noxious nociceptive impulses in the spinal, uh, subcortical and cortical areas of the central nervous system. And I'm gonna take my, I'm gonna go my way with this and say, in my understanding, this is where a lot of acute pain becomes chronic pain, right? A noxious stimulus or impulse that creates pain, there's some sort of event, bang, there's some sort of injury, there's something that occurs that causes pain, acute pain. But our bodies become sensitized to that very quickly. And as we become sensitized to that, now you take away that stimulus And now, very ordinary things can cause pain. And this is not telling anything you don't know as a healthcare provider. We see this all day, every single day, right? Individuals in chronic pain that are super scared to move. You know, you're barely touching them, and they're jumping off the table. And you're like, God, like I'm not touching this. I'm barely doing light touch, and they're jumping off the table. They are sensitized, right? So that is the brain's ability. That's neuroplasticity on the negative side of things, right? Their synaptic connections have altered. And their, fu- their function, at least, or their organization has d- changed where just simple light touch is causing abject pain. And breaking that cycle is a lot of what we do each and every day. So that altered afferent input is considered to be one of the best explanations for the development of abnormal neuroplastic alterations in the central nervous system. That makes sense. And that's a lot of what we see with chronic pain. So the question is, uh, you know, restoring that normal... Sagittal plane posture and cervical spine alignment. You know, is that important it, for a better affrontation process? Right? Can 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 that go the other direction? Not necessarily due to input alone, but can we change that function with structural changes? That's really the question, and it's a good one because I think it's a question that's been asked for many many moons. So this study took an approach of being a prospective investigator blinded parallel group randomized clinical trial. So. Great study architecture, as far as I'm concerned. They took a bunch of people, about a little bit less than 100, that were between 18 and 25 years old and had no current or previous complaints of neck pain within the past year. And they basically split these people off into two groups. And and both... The goal was to use what I'm just gonna call a cervical orthotic, um, denerol or a hydroculator pack. The hydroculator pack was not hot or cold, not filled up with anything. It basically, that was the sham treatment, right? It basically was just like putting a uh, less than a t-shirt underneath your head. Whereas the denerol is sort of that extension, traction orthotic that you can lay on and, and it's supposed to unload the disc as we'll see. So the participants in the intervention group, of course, received the denerol cervical orthotic, the people in the control of the placebo group received just the hydroculator pack that basically didn't barely even touch their cervical spine. So this study took place over the course of multiple weeks. Uh, during each session, they began with three minutes per session and then they added an increase of one to two minutes per session until the goal of 20 minutes total time on the orthotic per session was attained. And this went uh, this was applied three weeks, excuse me, three times per week for 10 weeks. So there's 30 total sessions, and this was in a supervised setting. So that's really the way that it went down. Now, what's what's the goal of using this Dennerol? Well, the goal is, as they say, it's to cause viscoelastic creep deformation of the anterior soft tissues, the musculature, the longitudinal ligament, and the discs. So what does that mean? They're trying to unload the disc and normalize load sharing on the cervical column. So that's really the goal of using a general orthotic traction type device so if, you know, So how did it work out, right? That's the question. Well, in the intervention group that got the denoral traction, cervical lordosis increased by a mean of 13 degrees after 30 treatment sessions, and then it was maintained at three months. Now, in the control group, no significant improvement in lordosis. So that's pretty staggering. When we look at that, it's a mean of 13 degrees after 30 treatments, and it was maintained after three months. That's pretty staggering to me, and I think that that's something that all of us, you know, can take into account. Now, you know, this study doesn't get into, you know, I think of the over-the-door traction units versus a general traction unit. There's a whole bunch of cervical traction units out there. It'd be interesting to compare A, B, test, right, these traction units one to another. But, man, I mean, the ability for a traction unit to increase or normalize that cervical curve, that amount of degrees, in 30 treatments and then maintain that three months post, that's pretty interesting. And I think this is where we're starting to understand that play between structure and function and how can it impact uh, who we are, what we do, right? Because it's all about living your life. Ultimately, structure and function come down to what's your quality of life? Are you able to do those things you'd love to do? Are you able to get out there and function at your highest level? That's what it's all about and the interplay between structure and function with that is fascinating so as these researchers say regardless of the exact correlation between spine degeneration and the presence of pain there is preliminary evidence that spine degeneration can compromise the neuromuscular stabilizing system of the spine additionally disc degeneration altered cervical lordosis and forward head translation can all contribute to a reduced range of movement and altered segmental cervical spinal kinematic pattern and we've all seen this right people come in and that degenerative cast cascade is complex. It's not isolated to one thing. However, when we see a disc starting to collapse, when we see load on the facet joints, we might see segmental kyphosis. That person might not have pain, but quite often uh, pain might not be too far around the corner as that continues. And Functionally, they probably aren't functioning at their highest level. There is a biomechanical component to all this that is important. Now, again, the beauty of our bodies is the neuroplasticity, is the dynamics, and is the range that we all have where we can function at a pretty darn high level when we have negative alterations. That could be negative alteration in structure. Uh, and that is important. However, it's also the flip side of that is important where. If maintaining the best structure that we can is only going to, as this study would sort of peek that into that window, is only going to help us function at our highest level. So I think that's an important part of it. Now, how does all of this work? Why is that the case? Well, they're basically saying that a lack of motion or increased strain might increase the viscosity and slow or impair neural transport mechanisms, which is an interesting way to look at it. They are hypothesizing that neural tissue needs ample amounts of hot oxygen and nutrients to maintain prop, uh, optimal structure and function. I don't think there's anything wrong. Uh, with that. And there's evidence to suggest that abnormal cervical alignment may place a constant increased strain on neural and vascular elements in the cervical spine, directly impairing the blood flow to the spinal cord nerve roots and cerebral areas so it's kind of getting down to hey when there's structural changes as they're saying there's no structural changes this can this can dramatically impact the function of our ability to deliver nutrients and ultimately that's the functional output then changes of our brain central nervous system etc so their conclusion was quote We identified a reduced cervical lordosis and anterior head translation is associated with differences in neural activity at several regions of the somatosensory system. Restoration of the cervical sagittal alignment in terms of cervical lordosis and anterior head translation has a direct influence on the central conduction time. Clinical interventions directed at improving central neuro- central processing through restoring the normal sagittal alignment could be added to the clinical interventions targeting specific spinal disorders. So an interesting conclusion. Again, as I said at the top of this podcast, I think this is going to stimulate probably a lot more questions than answers and i think that is a good thing for a research paper so is structure important yes <laughs> is function important absolutely how does the balance of these two hang with each other well there's a lot of factors that influence that and it depends on the individual that is a dynamic system but ultimately when we start to see you know traction and things like that that can change or you know influence structure that then we see a direct output in the ability to influence function That becomes interesting to me. And I think all of us as healthcare providers, specifically in the neuromusculoskeletal space, need to heed that, need to stay up to date on what's going on with this. And hey, maybe if there's an individual in your practice, this is for you to make that clinical decision based upon that individual, their goals and what you're finding during your eval. But if there's somebody that maybe you've been taken care of through adjustments, maybe you've been taken care of even through rehab, but you haven't really done anything in the traction space this is my big take home from this. And they're having just this functional issue. They either have chronic, maybe they're in chronic pain. This was asymptomatic in this study. But your, your patient might have chronic pain or, or they have a functional disability that they're just really trying to get over that last little bit, whatever that functional challenge might be. The cat sat on the Adding in traction might be a good idea uh, if you haven't yet, right? If you're going through adjustments, if you're going through range of motion exercises, if you're going through you know, balance between strength and flexibility and rehab, and you haven't added in traction, maybe it's a good idea to see what happens. Now, I'm not suggesting necessarily you need to take pre and post x-rays and measure the, measure the changes, but you certainly can keep an eye on those functional improvements. So getting them on a traction device, seeing if that changes and improves their outcomes and improves your outcomes in your practice might not be a bad idea. I think all of us hear about traction. Uh, sometimes it's thought of as old school, but I can tell you, uh, you know, sometimes things come right back around in the ability for potentially a traction device to change that structure, which can improve the functional ability. That's just one more tool you can have in your tool belt when you're taking care of an individual. Think about what's going on with them. Determine what might be the best solution. And maybe this is one of those things you lean into a little more than you have in the past. So those are my big take-homes. If you have any questions about this, hit, hit me up, Jeff, at chiropractor.com. Also, if you are going to be out of your practice at all over the next few months, check out cairomatchmakers.com We have a bunch of locum docs, coverage docs available, ready to work throughout the United States. So if you are going to be out, do not shut your doors. You don't have to lose that revenue and interrupt your patient's care plans. You can stay revenue positive. Keep your patients on track. Use Chyra Matchmakers for your coverage services. CairoMatchmakers.com. Have a fantastic week in practice, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Evidence-Based Chiropractor. If you want to grow your practice, come back for next week's episode. If you want to grow faster, visit TheEvidenceBasedChiropractor.com and join our MD Marketing Membership today.